The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Thanks for the kind introduction. I'm really hoping to learn a lot uh, from everyone here today, uh, despite the fact that there's a report that's got a nice cover. Uh, we're in the middle of this project, uh, and uh, so we're looking for input, um, that, uh, and so you all have tremendous experience uh, from different aspects of the of this challenge uh, and so what I, I'm presenting is really work in progress and I really look forward either you know both today and afterward through uh, emails and and WeChat to be uh, uh, to become better informed uh, so I, I thought I would use uh, a, a few minutes to basically present the, the core findings of, of this project uh, and, and then, as we're going along, uh, welcome your feedback and then have a, a continued discussion afterwards. Does that sound like an okay plan? That works. Terrific. Well, yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, you're going to, you know, and hopefully, uh, before too long, you're going to realize uh, or, or figure out why on earth we decided to title this report The, the Fat Tech Dragon. Um, and um, that was um, not the original title. And, uh, but I think we end up being a title we're happy with. We did not find in nature uh, or a drawing of a fat dragon that we could put on the cover. So we've got a lot of nice servers uh, that makes, makes it a cool cover. So uh, this project is part of a two-year study called the China Innovation Policy Series uh, that we're carrying out at CSIS, uh, both uh, uh, our folks in China studies as well as in our technology policy program. Uh, we, we know China pretty well. Uh, they know tech pretty well and together uh, we're looking at uh, where China is uh, in, in the technology space. Um, and we've got a, a, a little website uh, that you can go to to see progress in what we're working on uh, in these reports and other, other aspects of, of the project. Um, there's been no shortage of attention in Washington uh, and elsewhere on Chinese technology policy. Uh, uh, and I think in, in Washington, you will be surprised to find that there are a lot of members of Congress and folks in the executive branch uh, who have heard of the phrase made in China 2025. It's probably the first industrial, specific industrial policy that uh, people in Washington would be able to say. Um, after saying, oh, a five-year plan or something. Um, these uh, studies on Made in China 2025 all have a common approach to them or others on industrial policy, which is about measuring whether or not China is complying with its commitments in the pursuit of these policies. And we think that's all well and good. Uh, and in, in, in our view, we take it as a, gi a given that a lot of Chinese policies in high tech are discriminatory. Uh, they may be fair. They may be discriminatory and still follow the law, the letter of the law. They may be discriminatory and break the rules. Uh, but we think that that's a, a question that's essentially already being asked and answered by a lot of other folks, um, and that we really don't want to spend much time answering in this report uh, and in this series. Instead, we're more interested in what is actually the commercial consequences of what China is doing. Are they getting innovation out of what they're doing? Are they changing markets? Are they changing business models? Are they changing people's lives? Or are they not? 
because we don't think that a good American policy or, or corporate strategies are sim can simply be based on whether or not the Chinese are playing fair. Uh, it needs to say, are they playing well? I think that's what we're asking. Uh, and we think that's important not only for the rest of us, but for China as well. So, we're, so that's the motivation behind our uh, approach, which is a little bit different than uh, you'll, you'll see in these, these other studies. So we think they're complementary as opposed to in conflict with each other, but we're asking, we're asking a different question. Uh, when you look for innovation in China, it's not hard to find. Uh, uh, I think 10 years ago, most folks would have a hard time naming innovative companies in China that are in high-tech spaces. Uh, but now, you see them all the time. Um, you know their brand names. They aren't just doing things behind. The, behind uh, as OEMs, uh, they are selling uh, to everybody. Uh, probably, does everybody here in this room use WeChat? No? Oh, well, you, you should. You should. Because it's so much better than most anything else you've got on your... And it does everything. It's not, Just like your phone is not a phone anymore, WeChat is not just for messaging with your buddies anymore. It does, does so much more. And I'm not getting paid to say that. Uh, so, uh, and Tencent's not a donor to the project. But anyway, <laughs> you, you can identify lots of Chinese companies, but, to, but can you say with any certainty that these are representative of Chinese industry? Uh, and companies in China that get involved in technology. It's hard to say, uh, even though you can identify more and more of these companies. Um, and so trying to come to a conclusion on this broader question of where is China in terms of innovation is difficult if you just look at individual companies. You might look at individual technologies and then do dives on those technologies. And sometimes that's helpful. Um, but sometimes it's difficult to draw a conclusion. Let me just give you an example uh, that we write about that's on, the, on our website. So everybody's got a pen. Uh, you may not use WeChat, but you use pens. Um, so the end of your pen uh, is called a nib. Uh, and it turns out this thing is surprisingly difficult to make. Uh, it requires the machining of it is, is very sophisticated. And China makes two billion pens a year, or something like that, because it's big. Anything in China is big, right? Uh, but they import almost all of the uh, they import all of the nibs from Germany and uh, Switzerland and Japan, because it's just, it's too hard to make this thing. So I, I was joking a few years ago that the Chinese would form a leading small group on nibs. Uh, they did not, even though they've got now lots of leading small groups on all sorts of things. Uh, there's over 80 of them. Uh, d double when Xi Jinping came into power. Uh, but Li Keqiang did personally get interested. And the Ministry of Science and Technology gave a $17 million grant to a couple companies in China, and they solved the problem. They came up with the, a nib. They could figure out how to do it. So the question is, is that, is that money that they gave to these companies, did they spend it appropriately? Or should China have Im could keep importing nibs uh, and focus their attention on other things. Uh, that, and you could apply that to just about any other sector in China where, where they are putting money, investing money, right? That's the nib of the problem, I think, that we're trying to answer in this project. Um, What's a nib cost to import? <laughs> I, I wish I knew. It's obviously far south of a penny or a fun, uh, but uh, the, the Chinese have made it 
uh, make it, and it's, it's unclear. Now, they sell it at a lower price. It's unclear whether if they included all of the actual costs that the, it ought to be that price. But since they're selling them domestically and then exporting the pens or whatever, there's, uh, there's no, 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 no one's going to call up Sidley Austin and say, you know, we've got a dumping case we need you to help us with. Uh, sorry. Sorry. So, but you never know. Down the road, uh, I'll let you know how so, it's going. So they don't import nibs anymore? They do. They still import nibs. But, the, but chi the question is, China's not exporting nibs, right? And that's where you get the dumping that would come in. So, um, any case, um, it's just it's meant to be sort of a representative case, uh, interesting, small little t technology. Um, so we we you know to try and figure out broadly where China stands in terms of its innovation performance, we didn't want to just depend on looking at individual companies or just a few cases. Uh, we were looking for broader uh, ways to draw a conclusion, and so where we land in this in this first cut is to look at these global innovation indices that exist. Uh, uh, some of them have been around a few years. Uh, there's about 12 that we identified. Um, and they have strengths and weaknesses. The Chinese have their own innovation index. These are combinations of different measures uh, that usually are compiled into a total score of 100, up at max 100. Some do 1 to 7 uh, scale. Uh, Bloomberg has one. And so we said, well, let's look at, and these, the, another good thing is beside the fact that they've got lots of things that go into these indices, uh, is that they uh, are applied to lots of countries. And so you can put China in comparative perspective to try and see where, it's, uh, where it ranks relative uh, to others. And so these indices typically give a raw score, and then they give a rank. Um, and um, as you're going to see, they don't all agree with each other. But there's, uh, they have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and so this is just our first cut of trying to look at where China sits relative to others. So here's uh, five of the, of the different indices. Um, and we went back as far as we can. And as you can see, people haven't been doing this for a very long time. Uh, um, and, and so we, we only have up to about seven years or eight years of data. And some of these have just been, like the Bloomberg Innovation Index, uh, we dismiss that just because it's only, there's only two years of data. So we're, we, um, you'll see the National Innovation Index, that's China's own. That's by the Ministry of Science and Technology. Um, and not surprisingly, it's at the top. Uh, it's at the top because the Ministry of Science and Technology picked components of the index which are easy for China to meet, like lots of patents, lots of R&D spending. Uh, lots of gross indicators uh, that make that number go up. At the other end, you've got the Global Creativity Index at the bottom, which has been going up lately, I'll get to that, but it's at the bottom relative to the others. That comes out from the University of Toronto, their business school. And uh, it's at the bottom because the way that they put together the in index, it's a combination of three things. A measurement on overall technology, human capital or talent, and tolerance. China scores really high in uh, technology, uh, but it scores really poorly in terms of their measures of talent. Uh, the, for example, the proportion of people that have a college degree. Uh, and it scores really low in tolerance. Uh, that's social, all different types of social tolerances for minorities, uh, different communities, et cetera, way at the bottom. Uh, and so naturally, China's going to be at the bottom of that. 
uh, relative to others. Uh, China's like 96th in tolerance out of the 100 and some countries that they measured. Uh, and so, but that, we decide that, although that's really interesting, uh, we, don't, we don't really move forward analyzing China with regard to the Global Creativity Index because it, it begins with an assumption that you must have a progressive environment, an open environment to get technology innovation. <clears throat> and our, and that our, China's challenging that question. They're it's a test case, it's an empirical test case of that. So we're saying, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but let's go look and see what the, the data tells. So we'll continue to follow it, but we're not beholden to that one view that innovation only occurs in garages where, where people uh, have ripped jeans and life is fun and they listen to any kind of music and have any different kind of lifestyle. That's just one, that's just one way that we think about it. So um, the one that we, uh, so this is how they look in terms of their raw scores. If you look at their rankings, again, you'll see some variation. Roughly, though, they're still r relative to each other similar. Um, we end up settling uh, on, you could go into more detail in the report, you can get all of the details about these indices in the report. Um, we end up deciding that we think the one that we ought to focus most on is this Global Innovation Index, which is put together by a combination of, of three institutions, um, let's see, uh, INSEAD, uh, WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, and Cornell's Business School. Um, and I'm not saying that just because I happen to be in New York at the moment. Although when you all think of Cornell, you don't think of it as New York. You think of it as like way, way far away up in the boonies, right? It is. Yeah, it is, right? It's uh, centrally located far except from everywhere. Except for their new campus. Except for their new campus. campus. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, tucked in between some finger lake somewhere. Any case. So, um, but let's give them some credit anyway. The, if you look at the Global Innovation Index, uh, the reason that we settle on that, it's got 103 indicators. Uh, that make up the index. Uh, most are physical measures. Um, and uh, they have some subjective measures like who do you think's doing what, uh, high tech successfully, who's not. Uh, but, and they have a lot of measures both on the input side of innovation, uh, on human capital, on funding, uh, and on the outputs, uh, intellectual property, knowledge, creative outputs, uh, commercial performance, value added. So we thought Overall, uh, it's, it's the most balanced one. And uh, so here's uh, the Global Innovation Index and, and where China fits relative to everybody else. And again, this, this is the raw score. And you've got the, if you look, if, if that's hard to see up there, you've got the report in front of you. You can, you can look at it close up. Um, and my basic takeaway from this uh, is that China is separating itself from the rest of the emerging economies. And it is approaching uh, that those advanced industrialized economies that we typically associate as being highly innovative, like Korea, Japan, Germany, and the United States, although not quite there yet. It's uh, separated itself, uh, and it is moving in a positive direction, but it still, fall, it still falls short of the most advanced economies. Uh, now this is a, uh, and this is basically the same outcome whether you're looking at the scores that we have here or the ranks. So you'll see that China, again, it, it really separates itself when you're saying ranked. This, you know, of all the 128 countries in the index, where does China sit on an overall scale? It's now uh, somewhere around 24th or so overall, and, and way different from India, Brazil. Uh, and, and I don't even think I've got Russia on here because Russia is like so far 
down the list because uh, you, you know you can't make a semiconductor out of oil or gas, I suppose. Um, although you should. Any case, so the um, so this is the basic. This is where China looks uh, in in gross measures, but that's not the end of the story, right? The end of the, uh, a, a key question is, what does it take China to get there? Uh, what kind of inputs do they put in to get this kind of output? And are they doing things in a uh, efficient way, uh, an effective way? Um, and are these uh, really uh, do these numbers stand up to greater <coughs> introspection? So if you look at inputs, just the input side, you know, putting money, uh, human capital uh, into it, again, you'll see China is growing. And uh, I don't have it here, but you'll see, you can see that's a clearly upward sloping curve in terms of the amount of inputs going into the pot in terms of innovation. Lots of more money, et cetera. And I'll, I'll break that down in a little bit. Um, in terms of outputs, uh, China, again, scores relatively high on outputs and looks like some of the other more advanced industrialized economies. But that's a really, that's, basic, that's a pretty volatile, flat line, it, bouncy line, uh, that red line there. So that, so that raises the question, is China getting, in terms of outputs, uh, what it should get based on the increasing amount of inputs going into things? And so really, that's a big question for us at the macro level and in individual case studies that we want to understand. Uh, so the, the rest of uh, what I want to mention today is about breaking down what it looks like on the input side and output side. If we peel behind these indices, what do we really see? And I think that we, what we find is that there's some real challenges, uh, particularly on the output side uh, in terms of technology innovation that make us wonder, uh, that lead us to, to conclude that calling China a fat tech dragon is appropriate. A, a fat tech dragon uh, is not a fat tech panda. A panda is supposed to be nice and chubby and cuddly. Dragons are not. Dragons are supposed to be mean and fierce and bulging with muscles, like, not like me. Uh, and so the, uh, our, our conclusion is, is that there's a lot of waste. There's a lot of inefficiencies going into this system, uh, which we don't think is good for China. We don't think it's good for anybody else. So let me say a little bit more about, this is uh, about the input side and a little bit about the output side. So on the input side, we all know China's spending a ton of money uh, on R&D. Uh, and I think everybody is familiar, uh, or you should be, with this statistic, which shows total expenditures of R&D relative to GDP, the size of, overall size of the economy. And China is now right up there with the rest of the OECD, uh, advanced industrialized economies, uh, spending over 2% of uh, its economy on, on R&D. And this may be an understatement, because China has a lot of R&D centers in Silicon Valley, in Israel, and everywhere else. Uh, which is part of that overall effort uh, to innovate. Uh, but there's a, a good question about whether uh, um, uh, this is uh, working out as the Chinese want. Uh, I typically, when I look at Chinese official statistics like that R&D as a percentage of GDP number, I immediately be begin with the assumption that it's a lie. Uh, I assume Chinese official data is wrong. So uh, that's just, I'm, this, just, that's just how I'm, I'm wired. Um, so I decided I'll go check. 
so we went and uh, we looked at Bloomberg data. We went company by company. If you look at all, take all of Bloomberg, all the companies listed in the Bloomberg database, and you, and you see, uh, and you, you look at all the Chinese companies and you break them down. And as long as they've got data on um, uh, their R&D expenditures and their total sales, you can figure out what their R&D intensity is how much they're spending relative on R&D relative to their sales. So we went company by company. It's like, I think we had some like 25 or 30,000 companies in this. And I've only got one slide here, but I had a, we, had inter, we had RA and interns spend like two months <coughs> doing all, the, all of this. So, and all of you know who, who work in, in, in uh, any area, sometimes just to get one little picture you spend forever. So, but it, it turns out uh, that the Ministry of Science and Tech, the Chinese official data is basically right. Unfortunately, that data, that, that's Bloomberg. But if, if you believe Bloomberg, should we, if we believe Bloomberg, basically it says that the, you know, the average R&D intensity of Chinese companies is gradually rising, which is consistent with the picture before of uh, gradually rising expendi expenditures, right? So I should give Chinese government more credit, right? So I'm, I'm willing to, to own up to that. You could talk about uh, the quality of corporate data from China, but never mind. Yes, no. Yeah, I, I, yes, we, we could. Um, but the, quest, the question is, is, the, the, is there a particular bias in that corporate data that ought to lead them to increasingly lie over time? And I, don't th I think the, the, uh, they ought to have the same bias five years ago that they have today. Checking a box? Yes. I'm doing China 2025 R&D check. <laughs> yes, yes. But that bias Which is the same. didn't occur five years ago because yeah, the yeah. box has changed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but anyway, before that and after that, the slope is basically the same. Um, so it's possible. It's also possible that companies in Germany and South Korea and others have p reasons to fudge numbers or whatever, too. So any case, uh, at least going, uh, uh, if Mr. Bloomberg says it's okay, I say it's okay, okay. right? So, uh, you know, um, I, I, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I, so I would, I would, if I was looking at any individual company, I would still look far further under the hood. But I'll give you the slope. Thanks a bunch. Okay, <laughs> all right, Chris. All right, good. All right, so um, now one of the questions, though, that we had is, is um, how well is this money being deployed? And uh, obviously China's financial system has changed quite a bit in the last decade. You've got uh, the rise of, of non-state banks, private equity venture capital, <laughs> thousands of those funds that represent a growing share of, of capital formation and investment. And um, are we getting things better? And, and I, I'm not sure if they're doing a better job of investing than the previous system, uh, the earlier sort of sta state-based system. Um, even though 76% uh, of, of uh, R&D in China is done by companies, actually a lot of that is still state-directed. Uh, because it, it's connected to uh, state industrial policies. Uh, a lot of the uh, uh, investment funds that are supposedly private really are state, have state backing to them. And in China, it's interesting, 85% of uh, R&D spending is on the D, on the development side. Um, only 10% of that is uh, on basic research, 5% is on basic research, 10 and on ap applications. So only 5% of that 2.1% of GDP goes to basic research. Uh, so that, that's, a pretty, that's pretty low. I don't have the comparative numbers, but China is low relative to, to others. Another way to look at this is venture capital activities in China. 
And yes, uh, we, and we interviewed uh, a whole a variety of venture capital firms. And what we found is that venture capital in China is not very adventurous. Uh, they are extremely safe in, in the choices that they make, uh, in that they, as, as, uh, they look for technologies that already are, well, are relatively mature and clearly have uh, a market. Uh, and so uh, and their goal is to help them scale up and execute. Uh, as, as one uh, told me, we don't invest in zero to one, we invest in one to 100. That is, we don't look for something new and try to get the first one of them and, and sh reshape the world. We look for something that's already good and then we, we, we push it up. We, we help them ex expand. Um, so that's not, China may not be different than many other parts of the world, but, that, but I don't think there's really any true angel investors in China. Folks that really are looking at, 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 at very exploratory research. Uh, one of the signs of that is that if you look at the proportion of profitable projects <coughs> in venture capital, the returns for in high tech are similar to those in traditional industries. In the United States and other places where there's lots of venture capital that goes into different things, uh, uh, traditional investments in traditional industries, the proportion of those that yield returns are far higher than in high tech. Because high tech is riskier. It's newer. You don't know if it's going to work. There's not even, before you even get to the market, you have to get to the technology. Uh, it's a much bigger gap. In China, it's essentially the same outcome, which says to me that a lot of the high tech investments aren't very high tech. They're not very new. Uh, so. I wonder about the input side on, in financing. Uh, I could tell you a story about human capital, uh, the other main component of the input side, but I'll, I'm going to save that uh, for later. Let me talk to you about the output side of things. Uh, there's two kinds of outputs we talk about in the report. The first is knowledge. The second is sort of commercial impact. Uh, in terms of uh, knowledge, uh, everyone knows China's uh, patenting like there's no tomorrow. Um, and China is now the world's largest filer of patents. And um, they even have uh, increased the number of patents they file abroad. Uh, there's more tripartite patents where they get both the, the US, Japan, and the EU all to sign on. And so that family of patents is, is pretty valuable when you've got all three. Um, but there's a big question about the, the value of these patents. Yes, they're filing a lot. But what do they, are they getting China anything? Are they getting these companies anything? And our, our question, we found reasons to question whether they're getting a lot for their money in these patents. Um, and sort of three different ways we measure that. Uh, the first is um, in um, licensing, patent license, uh, IP licensing in China. China's licensing, IP licensing market is a hundredth the size of the US IP licensing market. Their economy is one-fifth the size of ours. Uh, so it's relatively much smaller. One-fifth? Yeah, uh, in abs if, you, if you use straight absolute terms. China's economy is 12 trillion, ours is 60 trillion. Uh, if, you just use, if you just do the wrong official numbers. You can do purchasing power parity if you want, but I'm just saying the specific, this, uh, regular numbers. Uh, so uh, so their, their licensing market is, 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 is really small. Also, China's a big debtor uh, in global trade and licensing. That is, if uh, uh, Chinese 
if Chinese companies make something and others want to produce something like it, you know, the license, you know, say you want to do cell phone, a Huawei cell phone, right, and Huawei owns some of the technology, you have to pay them a licensing fee. Well, actually, uh, you know, China's receipts, uh, in, in international receipts for licensing have gone up. They're over a billion dollars now, which is pretty high. But China pays out 22 billion in licensing fees to others. They have a monster deficit. Uh, and you can collect, you can do some math and, and compute a ratio. And so China brings in about a, a nickel or five fun for every dollar it spends. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum is the United States. The U.S. brings in about three bucks in licensing fees for every dollar American companies spend abroad. Uh, there's only one country on the planet that has a worse ratio than China. North Korea. Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, North Korea doesn't pay licensing they fees. They don't pay licensing <laughs> fees. Uh, it's uh, South Africa. South Africa is at the very bottom of the heap. And China's number, this is just 2015, but if you go back and you can go to the IMF, which generates this data, uh, it's, it's China's not improving. It's as bad as it was 10 years ago. Uh, and, so, and it should be worse, because China is obviously not paying a lot of licensing fees that they ought to be paying. Uh, and so um, this is not a good picture. If you're Xi Jinping and you see the slide, you're like, my goal is to change the ratio and dominate in IP licensing fees. Um, but there's other ways to measure this. Uh, in mergers and acquisitions, some folks do M&A deals. Uh, as far as I know, and the, the lawyers that I interviewed, uh, when you go to acquire a Chinese company, whether it's a foreign company buying a Chinese company or a domestic deal, uh, their uh, uh, patent portfolio matters very little. It doesn't add up to a lot of money in the deal. There's lots of other physical assets and the, the political connections or market share or other things that matter much more uh, when you make that deal. So uh, in the United States, obviously, patent portfolios and things make a, make a much bigger difference in a, in a deal. Uh, we, another source of data, which we have much more specific numbers on, is on um, patent litigation. So um, in China, the when you, when you uh, think that your patent's been infringed and you bring a case, um, if you win, the average award is 98,000 renminbi. In the United States, the average award is 7.3 million. Now, you may think, well, we've just got better lawyers. But we do, we do, we do, we do, we do. But uh, that's... Something called treble damages. Yes, yeah, we've got lots of, I mean, we, but I think we just got better lawyers, all right? But in any case, 98,000 is nothing. It's, it's like, that's, it's, it's useless, right? It's no incentive uh, or disincentive to, to, to take, to steal. Right? And so, and also, if you look at the other way, if you look at competition <coughs> policy, anti-monopoly cases, and the monster size awards that the Chinese will give to dom companies that, uh, domestic companies, or, or they will fine foreign companies who they believe have violated China's anti-monopoly law, super high, like 900, what was Qualcomm's, $985 million? So it, sh it shows you that from a l sort of legal policy perspective, protecting the market for Chinese companies who are producers is more important than protecting the, the IP value of the sectors. Uh, there's other ways you can measure this, but all in all, they all add up to, to IP being very low value commercially, even though you've got lots of, big, lots of patents being filed. Okay. On the uh, last side of this out output side has to do with the comp commercial performance. And again, you can go look at individual companies, and you can look at some individual companies that are doing really well. Uh, and you can say, well, they, are, uh, they got more market share, uh, their stock's going up, 
Uh, they've got some more value added, but it's really a mixed bag uh, if you look across the entire economy. So I'll just give you one piece of data here, which is manufacturing value added as a percent of GDP, which should be, uh, which is a very good measure of uh, new creative inputs into a sector uh, and what that means and its contribution to the economy. And in China, that number has been going down overall. Now, in absolute terms, I should be fair, there's been an increase in, in value added in dollar terms over the last decade. But as a percentage of the economy, it's been falling overall. Um, it, partly that fall is about the rise of services sector in China and its greater contribution to the economy. Uh, but part of this is, is that there is a value-added problem some, in some areas of manufacturing that isn't being solved. Uh, and to me, this is one of the this is things that raises a question on the output side of, 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 of this. If you look at high-tech exports from domestic companies, another good measure of, of overall performance, uh, I'm sorry that there's a lot of numbers here. Again, you can look in the report. Uh, you'll see that overall, um, the high-tech exports from purely domestic Chinese companies, not joint ventures, et cetera, has been going up. Uh, but it's still a relatively low number. It's still only as of 2015, the last year, we have data about 15, about 20%, 19-20% of total exports. This is high-tech exports, right? Um, and so, but if you look at different sectors, uh, there's, it's been, you know, it's higher than that, of course. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, foreign invested companies, whether they're joint ventures or, or wholly foreign-owned enterprises, still dominate in, in, in high-tech exports, uh, you know, because Chris Merck did such a good job in getting his, helping American companies dominate that space in China. So, um, so there's still a ways to go. There's been progress, but there's still a ways to go, right? So what's the overall story here? And um, let me, I'm going to probably walk away a little bit from this slide, because I, what I want to do is tell you two different overall stories that we might have here. Um, because so far, it looks like I'm just painting a negative story. Right? But let, let me see if I can paint sort of an overall positive story or put a positive spin on this and then give you the, the more critical one as well. So on the positive side, you could say, well, um, efficiency in terms of innovation uh, isn't super important right now for China. What they need to do is they're still focusing on catching up uh, and that um, as they acquire more market share, in these sectors, especially in the commodified parts of that space, uh, they will then focus more on, on deep innovation. And so this is sort of a natural thing for countries to do. You could also say, well, China also has lots of savings. They can afford to do this for a long time. Uh, and so uh, there's no super risk to the economy uh, for doing so. And that also perhaps we aren't really capturing the progress that China is making in these type of data. and that we're not seeing the learning that is going in uh, when you go from different generations of technology. So China uh, was, you know, for 2G cellular or wireless, totally just using foreign technologies. And 3G, they came up with their own bad technology uh, and forced companies to use it. 4G, uh, they actually now are doing really well in 4G. And in 5G, China will be at the front of the pack. So maybe you could, maybe you could tell that story across a lot of sectors if, if you wanted to. Um, so, uh, so there's, and then in terms of the knowledge side, you could say, well, in IP, yes, China's a laggard, but if you think 
tacit knowledge is important. The type of knowledge that you pick up in manufacturing that you pass on to others where you improve efficiency of manufacturing and goes with your workers to other plants is, but is not captured in patents and, and copyrights. And there's lots of that in China when you go to Shenzhen or you know, in Dongguan or to Kunshan. Uh, then maybe the uh, picture that I just described to you doesn't apply. Maybe it's unfair, right? Um, but I still th I think that's probably giving China more credit than I would do. I still think that there's lots of waste, uh, and that there's huge, and that that is China just doesn't get a pass on it, not from a legal standpoint, but from an economic standpoint. I do think that a lot of the money going in is going down rat holes that never sees the light of day, and that that has an effect on China's overall economic performance, and that although they are making shinier brighter, faster, cooler looking things, uh, the overall productivity of China's economy is actually still going down. Uh, it's not flat, it's, it's going down. And innovation is supposed to be about helping the economy become more efficient and more productive. But productivity <clears throat> in China is, at best, been flat over the last decade um, and probably is, is in the decline. There's not an ounce of the 6.9% growth this year that will come from improvements in productivity. Every bit of it will come from throwing more stuff into the pot. Every, every part of it. Uh, and so, to me, that's a problem. Now, for the rest of the world, um, I think it's a big problem, or a big challenge, because of China's size. Uh, because anything China does in any of these markets, uh, in any big market, will affect everybody else. And so, if you care about the health of supply chains, not just the performance of any individual company, but the health of the supply chains, then you need to have uh, supply chains and industries which uh, have some type of business model that can be relatively profitable so that you can sink those profits back into R&D. And if China is using a bottomless well of funding uh, to move into these sectors, uh, then that challenges the health of the potential health of those business models. Uh, some business models maybe deserve to be challenged. Uh, but not all of them. And so uh, I'm, I'm concerned uh, that we figure out how to make sure that China's movement into high tech creates a virtuous cycle that generates healthier, stronger supply chains and doesn't create a vicious cycle of weaker, less productive supply chains, because I think that's important for everybody, not just the companies, uh, but the consumers, uh, the broader economies. Uh, and so for me, that's, a, that's something that we have to look at. Going forward, um, our, our, we're going to be doing research on six industries to kind of uh, look to what extent China's movement is successful and whether it's based on uh, simply a lot of funding and throwing money at things or whether we're seeing genuine innovation uh, coming out. Right now, I'm spending a lot of time on new generation vehicles, electric vehicles, autonomous mobility. Just did a big 10-day trip going around China looking at that. Went to Silicon Valley mm -hmm. last week. Um, and so uh, that's one area I've been spending a lot of time. But we'll be looking at uh, pharmaceuticals, commercial aircraft, uh, semiconductors, AI, um, and, and the Internet as well. So hopefully uh, after that we'll, we'll be able to say more broadly speaking, not just at a vague level, but specifically what's going on in these different industries which, which matter a lot. Uh, so why don't I stop there and, uh, and look forward to this discussion. If you're right, what are the policy prescriptions for the U.S. government? Um, if, I'm, if, if I'm right on the concern side of the ledger, 
then I think the U.S. needs to um, do a lot of things. Uh, uh, obviously, you know, long-term engagement with the Chinese to try and persuade them that uh, this type of heavy-handed industrial policy approach is not in their interests as well as others. Um, also, working uh, with allies um, who share common problems with us. Um, building institutions and new rules of the road like TPP. Um, or, and if you can't do TPP, you hope the 11 others do and eventually we get interested and go back and then it gets broadened out. Or the components of TPP, for example, related to investment or state-owned enterprises or e-commerce get adopted into other agreements. Whether like the you have to maybe. Would be an amazing thing, right? So, um, and then uh, the U.S. needs to itself uh, make sure that its economy is as innovative as possible. And even though we think we're super innovative, uh, we've got a healthcare system that doesn't encourage innovation. We don't uh, support enough of basic R&D. We don't have uh, the infrastructure that we need. Uh, my, I was real fearful that my ride on the train yesterday wouldn't get me here on time because usually the train seems to run off the track or run into another one. Uh, so, uh, so we need we need we need a lot to fix. Uh, and then also, I think we need to think about potential penalties uh, uh, sticks that we would unilaterally use on China if they don't uh, uh, play ball, if they don't adapt. So, I but I think you need all of those things. Such use, as? which would be three hundred one or what? Yeah. Um, uh, potentially limiting Chinese investment in the United States uh, or uh, tariffs in certain areas. Well, uh, we don't as consistently. So, for example, uh, last year, nine billion, uh, Chinese SOEs invested $9 billion in the United States. If you just turned off that spigot and you said no more SOE investment this year, that would catch someone's attention. Yep. Uh, if you uh, expanded CFIUS... Companies that have sold to SOEs... Yeah, no, so, yeah, yeah, so, that's so right. you want to punish them. Do I want, do I want, I guess what I so want. If, yeah. if, if, if it's an M&A and you yeah. say that a Chinese bidder can't bid, you're suggesting that we punish that company for sure. the Chinese sins, so they'll have to sell to a lower bidder. Uh, in fact, yes, I do, uh, because if I want the health of the industries to be stronger down the road, it means that in the short term, because we are interdependent, that we'll have to have some pain along the way. But I don't want to do that, and I wouldn't consider doing it, unless we do all the other things that I mentioned. I don't think that you just go to that one because it's the easy one to do, but, and it's actually turning out very hard if you look at what they're doing now. Uh, but if you don't do all the other things and just use that as a, yeah. uh, a excuse, then actually you get nowhere. You shoot yourself in the foot with no potential benefit. So I, I'd be willing to have short-term pain and a, a much higher temperature in the relationship if I thought that that would be a productive And the pension tensions. funds, and you want to explain to the pension funds who own U.S. stocks? There's a financial that, that, that Yes, yes. You have less money, you have less money to retire on because of <laughs> well, this, I mean, and you, you yeah. can't be serious. A willing seller and a willing buyer. Absolutely. And you're going to get in the middle. In the middle. Boy, I, I think, I think you should not be advocating my, my something like that. I your view of how Sipius is working right now. Because yeah. My impression yeah. is that lacking the politicals, they have slowed down and become much more conservative. And that essentially yeah. what you're thinking about in terms of without a legal expansion of the scope, their yes. actual impact has been uh, much greater today to yeah, deter yeah. and delay yeah. uh, Chinese investment. Yeah. But do you have that view, or am I 
Yeah. I, I talk about sorry. Just just to get to, to since Steve is picking at this one problem. Just just to say, <laughs> and I'm not going to leave it. Yes, yeah. Well, uh, I guess the question would be, Steve, what could the Chinese? What would the Chinese have to do for you to be willing to think of a unilateral sanction, or could they basically do anything, uh, and it would never deserve? Uh, a significant response from the United States. Are, I, I'll let you, let you think uh, about it. There are plenty of there are yeah. plenty of things we can do yeah. that don't involve punishing retirees in the United States. Well, they wouldn't. Hey, yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> okay, okay. That's a good way to frame it. Of course, I, I would just. I think, I think yeah. that I have a Chinese client who wants to buy a minority share in yeah. a financial services company. So uh, in this case, yeah. we'd be punishing the partners who are. Yeah. It's a private company. Yeah. 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 I'm the other talking about basically yeah, public being, companies, and you have you know, to go back. Yeah. In a, in, you know, and I think the United States is based that a lot of our success is based upon an open and investment environment right. yeah. and having yeah. the government. Yeah. I th I th in yes. Yeah. Is you, you you were sitting there killing a flea with a sledgehammer and the no. the ancillary. I w uh, I don't see China as a flea. No. So I, I but see the issue. I see yeah. the issues as yeah. not that not changing a fundamental part of what. America's success is based upon. Yeah. And when I hear smart folks advocate it, I kind of go. Well, I'm not saying that we ought to do it. I'm saying that it ought to be one of the menu of options oh, that we yeah. think about. Okay. Yeah. If we talk about CFIUS and where it is. Are you trying to evaluate yeah. the commercial impact in terms of market distortions on, of, of Chinese policy? Uh, for the project as a whole? Yeah. 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 I think one of the things that we'd like to do uh, as and in each of these individual sectors is, is look at not uh, obviously changing market shares, but also changes in prices along the supply chain. So in uh, electric vehicles, for example, uh, China's eventually uh, Chinese companies could be into, uh, big producers that have a much more large, a much larger market share. China's half of the world's EV market right now. The, the but you could. The cautionary tale would be solar panels, right? Yeah, and sure. It's a very interesting history, and and sure. The, the enormous overcapacity built in China as a result of industrial policy, not as a result of commercially driven investment, has had an immense impact on the solar panel industry in Germany, the United States, elsewhere. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But the question is whether that's going to be a general pattern. If that's a general pattern, then I think, you know, we're, we're really going to be it's, looking uh, at all kinds Yeah, of I think there's, there's different sectors, you get different types of outcomes. So uh, in cell phones, um, it's, it's, it's been more positive. Uh, what the Chinese have done, not necessarily as part of the components of cell phones. In solar, the, at, the, at the producer level, there's obviously been these huge problems. Then you have the sort of public welfare question. That is, what is it, is the public gain anything from moving from fossil fuels to renewables and bringing down the marginal cost, regardless of who are the producers? So that's another, uh, that's why it's a six-sided question on in terms of CFIUS and controls yeah uh, I think um, the CFIUS process itself is slowed down uh, partly for staffing reasons uh, but also you know DC is in the middle of this reevaluation of how whether CFIUS should be expanded or uh, supplemented with rules that take into consideration China's uh, reciprocity. Re yeah, investment. And, and CFIUS isn't a good uh, vehicle for reciprocity. Right. Reciprocity is not about national security, it's just about yep. uh, commercial fairness. Yep. So, and there's other ways to think about mm -hmm. potentially dealing with that. My own view is reciprocity is meant to be, uh, the reason that we're thinking about reciprocity is, is because when China joined the WTO, 
they weren't, which only, it only really covered trade. China didn't have a lot of outward investment, right? So we really didn't care about the rules then. And investment, there's no, there's not really many, any rules. Uh, and then secondly, uh, our, the, most of our relationship has been founded on, on the commercial side in terms of uh, compliant, legal compliance. But when a situation become, emerges that you didn't expect, and there's no rules to govern it, then you're looking around for what are other standards of fairness, the reciprocity one being the default. Uh, you can define it a bunch of different ways, but the goal should be, well, let's build regimes and rules that cover, cover investment as well, whether that's through you know, bi bilateral domestic laws like CFIUS or uh, TPP or other things um, remains to be seen. I think, you know, for, so CFIUS, that's a national security issue. And I think there's a real question on the national security side of whether CFIUS does enough because there's lots of, it, it, it basically looks at large scale acquisitions. It doesn't, it it's, can look at small scale, but, but on yes. The, on this Please identify yeah. yourself because we're sure. recording this. And sure. Uh, my name is Michael Chang uh, from Jeffries. Um, on the CFIUS point, do you think that, is there a conversation to codify those rules to give kind of greater clarity to both buyers and sellers? Because when I speak with my clients, you know, a big part of it is we don't know what the rules are. So it, there's this massive chilling effect on, you know, Chinese investment in, into the U.S. And, you know, when we look at U.S. sellers, they don't want to consider Chinese buyers because, you know, they read all the press. And, you know, there was a sale that was blocked yes. you know, years, a couple of years ago where there was land next to, you know, there was a solar, the solar, um, uh, excuse me, the, the wind, uh, the wind yes, farm sunny. close to the... The military base and then so you know you get all the there's really no rules of the road um and you know i think from a business perspective for us it's difficult to advise our clients because it's you know it's kind of whatever you read in the papers and then you know if there's a bad headline then everyone gets spooked if it's a, you know something goes through then um, yeah. people feel feel more comfortable so you know that's something from a, from, from an investment side from, from an investment banking side that that we struggle <clears throat> with yeah um you know CFIUS applies to a small percentage of investment deals, um, not a lot, lot of them. Um, there have only been a couple that have been outright turned away in the last decade. Most end up people, the, the participants withdraw the deal, knowing that there's going to be a potential problem. Um, I would say that the legal framework, you can look at the legal framework and the standards that the, that the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. uses, um, and typically the folks in the deal uh, by their engagement with the staff end up knowing really what the big challenges are and typically those involve um, well is there an obvious military use for the technology uh, or more likely can you explain to us the ownership structure of the Chinese entity usually that is super that is oftentimes the biggest challenge because it's oftentimes what they're unwilling to do. And so if you can't look at the, actually who owns the Chinese entity, that raises, that is a, is a big problem. Then the question is what, where is it going to be used? What constraints on transfer, et cetera? And so those are things usually the participants to the deal, uh, they get asked a lot of questions. And so they usually know uh, when something is going to be, uh, when it's going to raise big red flags. Mm -hmm. I think the, it's difficult, since it's a national security, issue it's really hard to be super transparent because you're dealing with 
national security questions and oftentimes confidential information. And so it puts the committee in a difficult position because they can't publicly give an ex offer an explanation of why they've raised concerns or in a, a couple cases turned things down. I still would say, by and large, it's a small, it's a very small proportion of, over, of, of deals. Uh, I think it's been an increasing proportion because there have been more deals in high tech uh, and in some, for example, in semiconductors. So um, I don't, it could obviously be made better. My, my guess is that the politics in DC are that it's not going to get better. It's going to get more challenging and they're going to broaden it and they're going to try and solve some problems uh, that they can't solve through traditional type of rules of the road, like with regard to uh, the employees and the knowledge that they have and, and who can hire an American, American employee that say worked at Intel. Can uh, a Chinese uh, company in, Guangzhou, in uh, Guizhou that, make, that has an internet startup or a, a chip company startup, can they just hire them away? I think they're gonna, you're going to see that's going to become really? more challenging. Really? That's, that'll be interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So restrictive. So Ken Miller. <clears throat> let me just kind of bring you back to the output question. Uh, I think I, it was about five to seven years ago I wrote an article on this subject and uh, figured out how important the Ministry of Science and Technology was to this. They were already building a fat dragon, pouring resources in. I think China even then was second only to Israel in terms of percent of GDP. And they were already thinking about how often their scientific papers were being cited, yes. how much their patents were being licensed. And when you get to these big companies uh, and you see something like Tencent and all the and, and, and by the way, at one end of the spectrum, you've got pure science and creativity, and at the other, you've got uh, entrepreneurship uh, yes. and innovation just before it. So when you get to innovation and entrepreneurship, how do you figure out what's Chinese innovation and what's borrowed from the best? Sure. Um. Uh, you know, finding things that are uniquely Chinese is, 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 is difficult because most Chinese, many Chinese have studied abroad or they've worked in multinationals. Uh, I would say that if you uh, were to close China off from the global economy, this whole uh, enterprise would stop. Uh, globalization is critical for, for any, for most of these uh, sectors. Um, that because of talent or money or management skill or execution, uh, a lot of this uh, is, is interconnected. I, th I think it's hard to, I mean, I think we say, is there, and, and most technologies are developed by people from multiple countries. Um, so there's some technologies we could say is purely an American technology, but usually it comes from multiple places. I give an example, there's a company I'm looking at in electric vehicles called NIO, N-I-O, Shanghai-based company. Uh, they, they call themselves a global startup. They've got employees from 80 countries. They've got an office, in sh their headquarters in Shanghai, but they have a big facility in San Jose I visited and in Munich. They're right across the street from BMW's headquarters. So they hired away a bunch of BMW staff, so they set up right across the street and just say, you know, your commute's the same, just turn left <laughs> from now on. Um, and uh, the folks working for them call them from all over the place. And you know they could say we're building a, China, a, a very new type of, of, of Chinese car, 
but in fact it's put together by, by lots of folks. Um, I don't know if the question of what is purely Chinese or not purely Chinese is as important as it, as it used to, because maybe there's something motivating that well, for, question. Forget that, but what's innovation? Yeah. Uh, how do you measure how innovative they are in their outputs? Sure. So the type of things, uh, so if you're talking at the corporate level or individual products, so usually these are um, new technical creations that, have, uh, that reach the market. Either they may be something wholly from new, new cut cloth or an adaptation of existing technologies uh, that are customized or merged with, used with other technologies. So Tencent didn't invent the internet. They didn't even invent uh, chatting between clubs, but they then brought in uh, the payments and other types of services and having that all on a common platform, that's a kind of interesting ad adaptive uh, application of an innovation that is that is interesting that creates in the same way that the iPhone has lots of things which existed separately before but were brought together. I don't think the that WeChat as is revolutionary as the iPhone, uh, but nevertheless, that's the kind of thing. Um, if you look at uh, you know so new sources of energy, uh, other types of things, and then I the report and these innovation indices come up with bunches of different types of, of metrics. That's what I'm asking. Yes. What are those metrics? Yeah. How do you measure innovation? Yeah. So, so that's why, you know, value added in an industry, uh, high-tech exports, uh, on the, this is on the commercial side. Mm -hmm. uh, those are two big ones. You can, you can look at um, changing business models, the extent to which business models and supply chains evolve. Um, those things on the commercial side to me seem more valuable than looking at published papers or, or citations or uh, the kind of file. patent that's applied for. Um, yeah, it also, so I think the licensing fees matter to me more than the patents. No, but the, the, the two yeah. kinds of, uh, you know, what's the, the innovation patent and kind of the... Uh, the yeah, there's an invention thing. patent, there's invention. utility patent, et cetera, yeah. So, so, and China's, you know, invention patents are still a minority of patents filed in China, but they're in a, a growing minority. So um, I, can, I can, if I get your email, I can send you this, these lists of, of these things. Graham, you had something? Yeah, um, and then well, John. Scott, thank you very much. Um, I think we've all read a number of articles in the similar vein, and this is just, uh, it's just really great to see your research. Um, I just wanted to highlight a few things that you said which um, sh struck me. Um, one is you mentioned, this is, a, this is a broader issue, but you mentioned one of the metrics that went into one of the indices that you were looking at is percentage of the population that's a college graduate. And I think that that's, a, that's exactly the type of thing that doesn't work for China, as we all know, because 50% of people live in cities. So essentially for the economy as we perceive it, 50% of people don't matter, right? And then when you go to the cities, if you're looking at the economy that's sort of innovative, again, 50% of the people don't matter. So actually the, the number of people that you're looking at is essentially the size of the United States. You have about 300 million or so people, maybe a little bit more, 400 million, that are actually potential innovators. And that's sort of comparable to what we have here in the States. So what I think is really interesting about China is that we actually sort of undersell everything that China does by the way that we measure it. If you also look at GDP, which is such an easy one to measure, we don't measure that in 
output first. We measure that in U.S. dollars, which then has a, you know, you chop it, chop it by seven or chop it by six to get to the U.S. dollar rate. But if you actually look at how much a bottle of water costs, obviously this is purchasing power parity. Um, but if you look how much a bottle of water costs in China, it's one yuan. And if you look how much a bottle of water costs here, it's a dollar. So actually, if you look at sort of the fundamental characteristics of China, I think sometimes they get undercut in terms of their total impact uh, to the society. And the last thing I want to say there is you mentioned this, you know, zero to one versus one to 100 mentality. And I think that that's a very interesting thing because to go to Ken's point about innovation, what is innovation? Well. I don't think that it's necessarily more innovative to go from zero to one. That's sort of on the research side. You mentioned the R&D. I don't know if that's more innovative than to go to actually be able to build 5,000 5, kilometers of high-speed rail. You know, is, is that more innovative, or is it more innovative to invent the rail car and, and build a couple hundred kilometers of that? So these are just things that I wanted to raise up from what you said, which I think are extremely interesting, mm -hmm. and that challenge that China is challenging, I think, the world order in exactly this mentality, and it's hard to measure. Yeah, Graham, that's super helpful, uh, and I appreciate that. And I think whether you look at issues as a you know, percentage of this or the absolute figures, yeah, China looks different depending which way you cut it. Um, and I would say, I would agree that, especially for companies that are in uh, high tech and for consumers of, of high tech, that 300 million matters a lot, and that, that that's the one that's the ones that we perceive. Say from the perspective of overall China, uh, uh, the whole population is still relevant for where they are going as a whole. Uh, and I guess there's a question: Can that can what those 300 million do pull along the rest of the economy? So I'll just give you a, a interesting piece of data: 98% uh, of urban Chinese have a high school degree. Hmm. 30% of rural Chinese have a high school degree. And 75% of China's future workforce will come from rural China. So if you need strong human capital skills to work in an advanced economy, you're going to need to increase the human capital of rural Chinese. So more have to go to high school and get a better education. They need better nutrition. Uh, they need better parenting. They need a lot, of, a lot of things. Every single country that has had China's profile of human capital never escape the middle income trap. They've all got stuck in it. So there's only a few countries that have made it out of it. And so, yes, we could say there's a developed China, uh, these 300 million, which are mostly in coastal cities uh, and maybe a couple inland cities. And then there's this other country that's different. Uh, but as a whole, uh, they're going to have to radically raise human capital quality across the board for, for that. Uh, Scott Rosell, who's at Stanford, has terrific research. He's got a book coming out called The Other China. He's got this type of data and many, many other things. So, so I think we're facing multiple Chinas at the same time. Uh, and depending uh, which part uh, matters, you, you come up with different things. I would, on the GDP and the other, uh, you know, sort of what is innovation or those, are, I, I, I appreciate that. John, blow it. I took my card down. I, I I was going to return to CFIUS for a, for a moment, Scott, because I, where I thought you were heading at one point in talking about possible changes to the regime was uh, looking at early stage firms in the mm -hmm. U.S. and yeah. China's investment and, and so just 
interested in getting your comments on those. Um, yeah, I would agree. If you, if you look at, um, I, I didn't, I just got sidetracked, uh, like a, like someone who lives in the White House, something came along and it just took me off, <laughs> took me off, so, you know. Um, but I, that is something that is being raised uh, and is getting a lot more attention. Uh, there's a, a bill in the Senate, uh, is the Conyers, Senator Conyers bill, uh, which could include this. And some people have told me that inside a month this bill might get to the floor. Um, and if it did, it, it's possible to conclude that. In, include that, I, but I think the politics of D.C. right now are, are so murky and complicated that r figuring out what's going to get to the floor, what's going to, you know, what piece of other legislation it might get attached to, uh, those type of predictions are super hard. Uh, every time we feel like there's a strategy that's going along, something else happens and they change course. Uh, and so it's, I, 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 it's, it's hard to follow the story on, on any of these things. And, you know, the concerns about uh, labor, which is defined, is called a deemed export. Um, if, if someone works in one American high-tech company, go works for abroad for someone else. Uh, I think all of these things are being discussed uh, as potential avenues. You've got people coming up with way scarier things than I, than I brought up today about things that they might do. Uh, it's, lot when, it's when smart people advocate those policies yeah, that yeah. I get worried. I'm, uh, the crazies, I just shrug yes, and go, yes. whatever. Yeah. But there's lots of, people are thinking of really back alley stuff. It's, it's, pretty, tr it's pretty interesting. The level of creativity uh, that we see with a cup of Starbucks, you really can do quite a bit of damage. Chris. Uh, thank you, Chris Merck. Um, I'm, I'm curious about a couple of things. One is what other countries have a demographic profile similar to China, because I can't think of too many, but there, there probably are some out there. I'd be interested in your list. Um, and the second is whether you have comparative data or any data on funding of fundamental research, say China versus the U.S. We know that the U.S. model after the Second World War was that the federal government did fundamental research and companies did development. And the fundamental research funding is collapsing uh, from the federal government. So we have a big question about our future model. Um, I was talking to the provost of UCLA a couple nights ago, and you know, education support is collapsing all over the place, but particularly for research funding, um, according to him. And then uh, just a third comment, which I, I'm not sure of myself. I'm interested in your China's manufacturing value-added curve, which is the one I am sort of familiar with and would expect. And I, um, I saw a podcast uh, yesterday by Deloitte's China group that Ken DeWaskin put together, mm -hmm. in which he showed a slide which was, it was mainly, a, I thought, a rather uncritical presentation of Made in China 2025 and, and and how they're okay. going to transform the world. Um, but he had a slide there for what he was calling gross value creation in manufacturing, where the curve had a very different shape. It was you know, kind of going in a, in a much more positive direction. And I sent Ken a note, and I haven't had, had anything back, but the next time you uh, run across him, ask him what in the world that slide yes. was constructed from. Sure. I've never heard of, I've never, I don't quite know what he was counting there, what the sources of the data were. And I was surprised that the curve didn't look like the one you have here. No, it was a different. It was a different shape. Yes. And if there's something, if there's another way of looking at that data that produces a more positive curve, you might try to figure it out. Sure. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I'll go backwards. 
through the questions this came up. Uh, yeah, in absolute dollar value or renminbi or whatever, it's an upward sloping curve. So I could do the left side as the upward sloping curve. With that side, I could do the percentage of GDP and the other one. So I could I could add, add had have both pictures. And I think the if I did the absolute dollar value of value added manufacturing, it have that uh, upward sloping. So you think curve. that's what he was doing? Yeah. So I think okay. he was using the 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 the, the val, you know the absolute value. In terms of um, uh, basic R and D and where China is in comparative perspective, uh, I don't have have. Uh, at, the, at my fingertips, uh, we've probably got somewhere in our databases, China relative to others. Um, I do think um, a lot of what their basic research is they spend money on are fancy projects. Like, can we get this supercomputer to go faster than any what is supercomputer? Can we make a satellite? The Big Ten, from, you know, from most. Yes, so those big projects. And, and some of those things end up having uh, a value beyond that specific project, but, but usually they're showcase, showcases um, as opposed to, to bringing a lot of commercial benefit. Um, but I have to go look for the data. I, I think it, it, it's worthwhile looking into more. In terms of demographic profiles, um, there's the only country I can think of right now is Japan. Uh, in terms of like, contemporarily, in terms of the a aging. Well, but in not countries yeah. with an aging yes. profile, what I was thinking of was China has this huge bulge partially created by the one-child policy. Yes. It's almost, yes. It's almost, almost unique to China. Yes. So you had a labor dividend yes. for years and years, several decades, and now you're getting a shrinking workforce in a, yes. very, in a very dramatic way, which they can't do anything about. Sure. Uh, um, but I, I'm not yeah. aware of other countries where you have exactly the same kind of bulge that came up and then sort of yeah, passed. yeah. There are things that they that you can do for that. Um, you can raise the retirement age. Most of us don't want to do that, right? Um, but you could. China's retirement age is a relatively young, fifty-five and sixty or whatever. So you could rate. You could raise the retirement age. Uh, China could also import people, right? Uh, China could open up its immigration rules. Of course, the, so when you think about that, the likelihood of them doing that is pretty, say, pretty low, right? Yeah. But if they but if they did. Uh, there's lots of places out there that have labor that'd be happy to export their labor to China. Uh, China is, uh, is weird that China actually sends a lot of labor abroad. So theoretically, it could do that. And then if you, if you just have less labor-intensive, uh, much less yeah. labor-intensive economy, then uh, that's going to be, then you'll also be able to support that retiring population. But uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's not a, as big a problem right now, but I think in 10 years, um, it, it will be a bigger issue. China still, even though it's got, you know, pension systems and stuff, they're not fully funded, and it's it, and they don't full. And in rural China, it's it's really folks are essentially on their own. I think it's a huge issue, and it's already a constraint. Yeah. But I yeah. just don't know yeah. any other country that has that sort of bulge moving through the python. Yes. As, yeah. as in the way that China does. Yeah. Maybe, you know, Italy, Japan, they're all yeah. aging. Right? Last yes. question, May. Oh. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if you're following the One Belt, One Road initiative, and to what extent does China, or what are your views on the extent to which China might be looking at it as, as an opportunity to incorporate innovation, um, even if they define it differently? Um, and what are your thoughts on the situation now? Sure. Um, I, th um, I don't spend mo a lot of time looking at the Belt and Road. My colleagues, uh, Elsewhere in CSIS spend a lot of time on this. They have a project called Reconnecting Asia, 
which is a project by project database of lots of, of thousands of infrastructure projects in Asia that aren't just part of the Belt and Road, but also, you know, India, South Korea, Russia, ASEAN, uh, all have trans-Asia infrastructure initiatives. Even the U.S. does. The Silk Road project is very teeny. Um, so we look at all of them. Uh, and we had an event last week, and there was a report that came out with it called Competing Visions, which compares the Belt and Road with these others and what they're doing. Uh, my sense is that this is not primarily a way for China to expand its efforts at innovation abroad, technology innovation abroad. It's a way to um, expand, uh, strengthen uh, trade links, uh, to provide an outlet for some overcapacity in China, although China's overcapacity problem is far outstrips what might be in, put into the Belt and Road. Uh, it is a Christmas tree of potentially many different solutions to many different problems, which is, uh, if you think innovation is not well defined, the Belt and Road is not well is is even worse. Uh, and so, um, I you know that's um, in terms of my judgment of, of, of how it's going to go, uh, I think they you know that China could hit twenty percent of what it's trying to do. That would be pretty successful. Um, I think you know it's still mostly advertising. It's still mostly a PowerPoint presentation uh, and Xinhua stories. Uh, so they're and cobbled together existing projects that they put under the Belt and Road framework. Um, I'm probably generally more optimistic about what can be done along the maritime Silk Road, the road on, on the ports as opposed to overland. Um, but. Uh, regardless, I would say, you know, from the American perspective, um, uh, I'm, I don't really see a big downside to the United States. If this, if this goes well, and there's some opportunities for American companies, and um, the, there's some development, broad-based development in some of these countries, uh, then that's a good thing for us. Uh, if it goes poorly, uh, and it generates a backlash against China, then it's good for the United States too. So I think either way, whether it goes really well or really poorly, the U.S. wins. You making any attempt to to look at other countries' industrial policies and make do it on a comparative basis? So if you think of the role of MIDI and Japan and the way they coordinate among, even though they're private companies, the coordinating function of the government is to some degree an industrial policy, or France, or other places that have much more intrusive governments than the United States? Um, um, if, and that is the yeah, final yeah, question. Okay. Sorry. All right. Yes. yes. <laughs> and Steve gets the final question. The, um, you know, I've done a lot of reading, uh, and to some extent we've got comparative data on what folks are, are spending, et cetera. Uh, and, our and this project's primarily looking at actual activity as opposed to policy, even though we want to uh, say something about policy and institutions uh, to the extent that they affect the inputs or the outputs. Um, but it's not meant to be a comparative policy study um, because, because if, we, if we spend all our time on that, we, I think we'd still end up missing what our big question is, which is about the out outcomes. Right. And um, I think if I, was, if I was still an academic, 
I'd probably have a chapter that was about the comparative policies and whether China is doing stuff radically different or similar. And you can go back, you know, the United States and others have had industrial policies. The Department of Defense still has a big industrial policy component to it. So you can't say that one is all state and one is all planned. There's very, it's, it's the range. Uh, it's, that may, may end up being an academic exercise given the scale of China. So it's uh, entry into any market, whether it's at the behest of the state or totally privately generated, that affects everybody. And so we're really concerned, or our, our interest, whether it's a concern, uh, our intellectual concern is what is the effect of China moving into these supply chains and industries mean for everybody else, regardless of whether it's at the initiative of the state or anybody else. Great. Scott, thank you so much. Yeah. This was fabulous.